Before we begin, just giving you an update on our new subscription. It's called Dave McWilliams Plus on Apple. You just double click, you get no ads, and you get me and John, pure and simple. And Mac, you get early access episodes. Did you know that? Sure. My day is made. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. To understand the economy... You have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is August. Isn't time flying along? The eighth month of the year of our Lord, 2022. And what a bizarre year it has been. Okay. Had you said to us at the beginning of January that not only would there be a war in Europe, But that war, and this is the crucial thing, is now going into its sixth month. People believe that war was going to be initially six hours, then maybe six days, then possibly six weeks. But I don't think anybody believed that the war, the meat grinder, that is the war in Ukraine, is going on and on and on. And this, of course, is causing all sorts of divisions, all sorts of schisms within What was in the very, very beginning, a highly unified front against Russia. Now, and that's what we're going to talk about today, with the impact that Russia is going to have, has already had on gas prices, oil prices, wheat prices, and the price of energy. And as I've said before, energy isn't so much the cost of living, it's the cost of life. And as Russia has increased the cost of life, has squeezed Europe in particular, what we're going into is phase maybe two or three of Putin's war. And what we're going to ask in this podcast or try to tease out is this big question, which is, is Putin winning? Is he actually winning? Because the default position of everybody, really almost everybody, at the start was, this is a crazy suicidal move for Putin and his regime. It will be isolated. Russia will be enfeebled. Russia will be cut off from the rest of the world. Ultimately, that will have an impact and Putin will sue for peace. That has not happened. So the whole point of this podcast, I know it's kind of jolly, first week of August, you're probably on holidays, is, is Putin winning? John Davis, how are you, Head? I'm good. I'm good. Just thinking about all of that, though, as well, is that, you know, in those first six hours, six days, six weeks, Europe came together and the West came together and they were strong. And we did what we had to do. 
but it just hasn't been enough. You know, the well, war has grinded on and continues to grind on. And there seems to be, and we'll talk about this now, but there seems to be a big shift in power. And as you say, schisms within Europe and within the alliance, as it were. So we're kind of, we're not really in a good place at the moment. Well, I mean, the whole winter thing, is looking a bit scary. Yeah, well, the winter, let's, we're going to focus on winter, but what I wanted to focus on is energy prices. And I also want to focus on news this week, John, that the five major oil companies, the big ones, Exxon, Chevron, Shell, BP, and Total. So what you have is two American companies, a British-Dutch company, a British company, and a French company. Yeah. Together are on track to generate over $50 billion in profits in the three months from March to June. So in the first three months of this war. Now, if Something you've been morally wrong with that. Well, I think there is. If you've been following, so for example, if you know, you know that uh, for my troubles, I'm on the board of Bernie Sanders, Sanders Institute in, yes. in, the, in the States, right? And the Sanders Institute have been very, very consistent Insane, And so too, for example, has Mick Lynch in the UK, the train workers union guy. He's great. Insane. I'm a big fan of his, actually. Well, they're both saying the reason that we are having inflation is not that workers' wages are rising. And the solution is not that workers' wages should fall. It is that the major oil companies, the major players in the game, are extracting huge and huge amounts of profits. So as oil prices rise... There's basically two or three places they can go. It can go into wages or it can go into profits. And what they're looking at is they're saying, look at the evidence of dividends, look at the evidence of share prices, look at the evidence of profits generated. And what you're seeing is that the oil companies and their shareholders are making a fortune as inflation rises. Because let's come back to it. Every time there's an increase in the price of energy, it is a massive transfer of income and wealth from energy consumers to energy producers yes. via the mechanisms of the energy companies, right? So as long as we see this as a pendulum sh- shift, and you remember we talked about the, the rumble in the jungle and all that sort of stuff, like basically yeah. how Muhammad Ali ended up fighting in what was in effect a country called Zaire yeah. was because of the shift in energy, right? Zaire was an energy producer in the 70s. Price of energy goes up. They get loads and loads of money. But the major one is from energy producers, which are in effect the OPEC countries plus Russia. Those countries are doing extremely well, right? And it's the energy consumers who are getting both inflation and a reduction in real incomes as inflation erodes the incomes. Now, where that has pushed the political debate is, well, look, if we have inflation, then we've got to have a recession to bear down on inflation. But what recessions always do is they always, always bias themselves against the working man because it's the working man who loses his job in a recession in the main, right? And then what happens in after that recession, when the working man gets back up off the canvas in terms of dusting himself down and trying to get a job, what happens is wages are reset downwards after a recession. So basically this is why you have the permanent, permanent deflation of real wages in American manufacturing, for example, Mm. in the last 25 years. So what Bernie Sanders is saying and Mick Lynch is saying is saying, hold on a second, look at the oil majors. That's where the money's going. Yeah. And if you look at their profits this last week, it's hard to disagree. 
What is interesting as well is that Britain introduced a 25% windfall tax on oil and gas producers in the North Sea. And that was basically, the idea of that is to help, you know, people through the winter. But, you know, 25%, number one, is that enough? And number two, is this something that we could see in America? Is this the kind of stuff that we, we need more of, more windfall tax? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's back some of the money. Do. There's two things you can do about this. One is this idea that Mario Draghi had and Joe Biden wants to have, which is a price cap. So, for example, if OPEC is a producer's organization, you can have a consumer's organization. So OPEC is a producer's cartel, which regulates the supply of oil, of which Saudi Arabia is the swing producer. It's the one that can actually onboard and offboard oil quickly, right? And that regulates the price. And that basically is the main player. But what Biden wants to do and what Draghi wanted to do was create a consumer cartel that's basically right. going to say, okay, guys, so look, there's two sides of this equation. There's the producers and there's the consumers. We're the consumers. And what we want to do is we want to fix a maximum oil price. And anything over and above that, we just simply won't buy. And that is something that, again, is part of this coalition that we set at the top it's the coalition that's necessary. You need a political will to keep this going. So at the moment, for example, because India and China will not join that consumer's cartel, the Russians can always sell oil to India and China. And that's what's actually been happening. Do you know why? Because they simply don't want to turn against Russia. India, as we know, has got a long-standing relationship with Russia as long as America has with Pakistan. Yeah. And Pakistan and India are actually sworn enemies, nuclear enemies. Yeah, yeah. So India is playing a long game here on Russia. And China doesn't want America to walk off the pitch with all the goodies, right? China wants to continue to be this third man in this tripartite idea that you've got China, America, and Russia. Mm. So they're just stalling the ball. They're happy to buy at cut-down, mark-down prices Russian oil because they're getting bargains now from the Russians. So it's that idea that the coalition that we thought was going to be absolutely solid has atrophied in all sorts of ways. Yes. And now let's talk about the Russian strategy for the winter, because Europe is at the end of a Russian gas pipeline. There are other sources, but it takes so long to build up refineries and to get the gas, for example, from the Gulf to us, that we are at the mercy of the Russians. And you remember Javier Blas that we had on the show a couple of months ago, right? Fantastic energy analyst from Bloomberg. We've got him on the line. So why don't we let an expert talk us through what he thinks is going to happen over the next six months? Javier Blas, whose book, The World for Sale, Money, Power, and the Traders Who Barter the World's Resources, was, for me, one of my reads of the year. I came late to the book, came to the paperback, Hardback was published last year. Unbelievably timely. Uh, And in terms of timing, though, I want to ask Javier, I want to talk about this coming winter. But the fact that you've just bought a flat in London, so obviously you're incredibly optimistic about the future. You just said to me, I've just just parted with all my money to buy a flat in London. So we're going to take everything you say with a pinch of salt. You're incredibly optimistic. Well, I I think that I'm going to do more or less what I did last time that I bought a property. I'm absolutely marking the peak of the market. And from here, it's it's a complete downturn. Interest (laughs) rates are going to go up. I'm going to struggle with my mortgage, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you should not really... If you see me buying a property, 
just run, put everything in cash, and and just just find a safe place. <laughs> All right, notice Javier Javier uh, Blast, the well-known uh, countercyclical indicator of all things uh, asset-wise. But Javier, I want to ask you about this winter. This week, prices of gas in Europe shot up dramatically because the Russians squeezed us a little bit more. Tell me what's going on. Well, Russia has reduced the amount of gas that is supplying to Germany, which is the main market for Russian gas in Europe, to just 20% of, of normal levels. That means that um, without some savings, and I would think that quite dramatic savings, Germany is going to really struggle with gas supply through the winter. If we have learned anything over the last almost year of Russia you know, slowly but surely reducing supply of gas to Europe, Let's remind ourselves, this started about a year ago. It started way before this invasion of Ukraine in, at, at the end of February. This started around August of, of 2021. We know that Russia will continue squeezing the supply of gas into Europe. And potentially, and I think that you need to assume that that's the main scenario, at some point, it, it will stop completely supplying gas into Germany and the rest of Europe. If that happens, even if we are buying as much LNG as we can on the global market, and by we, I mean Europe, include the UK, it will not be enough. So we will have to reduce demand. In part, the market will dictate that because the prices are very, very high. So a lot of companies will, will reduce consumption just naturally or, or will be forced to reduce consumption because of the price will be too high. In part, we have seen now governments starting to very publicly encourage citizens to try to save energy wherever they can. In Germany, the Minister of Finance has been asking people, if you are taking a 10-minute shower, can you reduce it to five-minute shower, etc., etc. We will see where hot water and, and heating is provided centrally. So, you know, district heating, for example, we're going to see that that's going to be provided only for a limited amount of hours and, and limited temperatures. So it's not looking great if you are particularly in Germany for the winter. So it's looking that at best we're looking at rationing. At worst, we're looking at parts of Germany, certainly German industry, trying to do without gas. Maybe you're now 20%, maybe 5%. Parts of Germany freezing in the winter, hot water not being there, radiators not heating because they are so dependent on Russia. I think that the households are going to be protected. We're going to be in situations where certain households in big cities where they, they receive the, the heating and the, and the hot water centrally via district systems, are they going to be told you're not going to get 21 degrees at your houses, you're going to get 20 or 19 degrees Celsius? Yes, we're going to get that, but everything else will be cut to protect households. I don't think that anyone is going to freeze. That's not going to happen, not, not even in Germany, which is going to be the country most affected. But if Russian supplies are cut off completely over the winter, I'm expecting that that's, that's the main scenario. You need to assume that that's what is going to happen because in part also the consequences are so dramatic that you need to plan for that. If that happens, are we going to see the heavy energy intensive German industry having to reduce production significantly? Yes. Are we going to see some companies having to cut production by 15, 20%? Absolutely. That's going to happen. And that's going to have a knock-off effect on everything else. It's going to be supply chains affected, employment affected, companies that they're going to need support. 
large chunks of the German industry are going to need similar support to what other areas of the German economy or the European economy, for example, the airlines or the hotel industry needed through COVID. They are going to need money from the government. They're going to need loans guaranteed by the government. And that is going to be across many sectors. And families are going to need support. Electricity and gas prices are going to increase significantly. And some families are going to need support with the bills. So we're going into the nightmare scenario for Europe, which is that Russia doubles down on the Ukraine. It doubles down on its intention to force Europe to make concessions to Russia. And they're going to do this at a time when Europeans are at their most vulnerable. Yeah, I mean, the winter is the time where where, uh, Russia can play that card. And I think that the, the card that Russia wants to play is put, in some ways, the German and the European economy on his knees and offer the option. I I mean, people ask me, what is next? What is next movement by Putin? And I think that the next movement is there will be excuse and probably there's going to be maintenance on the the pipeline, uh, another turbine that is not working or something like that. And Nord Stream 1, it's completely shut down. No gas is flowing. And then I think that Putin will offer, but we have this other pipeline that you put under sanctions called Nord Stream 2 that is able to supply you tomorrow. So then for the German government, it's a, it's a no-full choice to take. It's either you bypass your own sanctions and say yes to Nord Stream 2, or you accept that you're going to get a lot more inflation and a lot less economic growth and a lot of potentially social instability. And that's what I think Putin is, is aiming for, and perhaps be in a situation in which he thinks that he can force German politicians to say, until here we can support Ukraine. This has got too complicated for us, too painful to us. And we are going to have to have a war with uh, President Zelensky of Ukraine and say, time's up. I think that that is what the Kremlin is thinking. And and look, uh, there are some diplomats in Europe who are worried that that could happen, that if the pain in Europe is is strong enough, some governments may cave. And one thing I noticed this week on that sort of global strategy of Putin that his energy minister was sitting down in Saudi Arabia just the last 24 hours. And they seem very happy together, the Saudis and the Russians. Well, what is not to like it if you think about the situation from the perspective of Saudi Arabia? The average production, average oil production of Saudi Arabia in 2022 is going to be the highest ever for on an annual basis. The price of oil remains above $100. This talk about recession, you know, we're not going to go into the debate whether the U.S. is in recession or not, because we have two quarters of negative GDP. But, but you know, the, the global economy clearly is cooling down. The price of oil remains above $100. Saudi Arabia probably is going to earn on a gross basis selling his oil more money in 2022 than probably any other year, perhaps with the exception of 2011. So the Saudis are loving it from an economic point of view, because they are making a lot of money. And from a political point of view, look at the last, uh, not just 24 hours, but let's look at what has happened in July. President Biden, who campaigned promising that was going to make Saudi Arabia a pariah state, went to Saudi Arabia and uh, had the the salutation with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman with a fist. (laughs) And then only a few hours ago, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman got red carpet treatment in Paris by President Emmanuel Macron. I mean, these are G7 
leaders who promised that they will never deal with Saudi Arabia ever again. And now they are either traveling there or welcoming at home, having negotiation, and oil is at the center. So for Saudi Arabia, this crisis has achieved two massive wins for the Saudis. One is turning around the the fiscal position of the kingdom, making a ton of money. The second one is the political rehabilitation of Mohammed bin Salman. It just he's back. He he's no longer the leader that no one had wanted to to talk or or travel to Saudi Arabia. People are willing to go to Saudi Arabia, and when he comes to Europe, the red carpet is provided. So the two men, Putin and Mohammed bin Salman, who we know kill journalists in their own way, we know this, are now suddenly turning the tables through the mechanism of oil. Now, let's just percolate out a wee bit. We were just chatting before we came on about the fact that uh, a brilliant Italian cameraman, Alex Sapienza, so Alex Sapienza, if you're listening, was listening to the podcast a couple of months, the last time you were on, Javier, and he said, look, man, that Spanish dude on energy, I just bought the book, amazing. But we were talking in Lebanon, right? This is where I was was the last couple of weeks. Lebanon, huge importer of wheat. Egypt, huge importer of wheat. The poor world in general, massive importer of cereals, can't feed itself. You're from a farming background up in the north of Spain, so this is part of your family backstory. What do you think is going to happen to the price of food? I I have got a bit less worried about the price of food over the last few months than I was at the beginning of the crisis. At the beginning of the crisis, I was really worried because wheat is so central to global food security. But a couple of things have happened. One is that we have got very lucky and crops elsewhere outside Russia and Ukraine have come very well. The weather, particularly in places like Canada and Australia, has been okay. So the crops elsewhere have really helped to ease a bit of the pressure in the global wheat market. So that has been one one positive thing, which is very different to the previous food crisis in, in 07, 08, when we have bad weather almost simultaneously in multiple production uh, countries. We have bad weather in Argentina, we have bad weather in Canada, we have bad weather in Australia, and then we got a bit of bad weather in the US and it was kind of game over. This time... Yes, we have still a huge problem in Russia and Ukraine, and particularly Ukraine, obviously, but elsewhere the crops are coming as expected, and that's good. I mean, as expected is good enough. The other reason that I'm a bit more positive, and I think I I mentioned this at the time, is that the rice market, which is the other half of the population, half of the population, we, we think about the world's population, let's say 7 billion people, half of us. You know, I'm a, I'm a wheat guy, my bread, and half of the population is, is rice. And the, the market for rice is literally doing nothing. It has been stable. The price is just slightly lower than a year ago. It is lower than when I started the, the war. And to put it in context, in 07, 08, the price of rice went to about $1,100 per ton, up from like 300 uh, It was a massive wow, spike. and it huge. went vertical. And this time it's $400. And it's not moving. So, uh, and so Asia is fine. Asia is fine. Asia so, is fine. It's a, it's us wheat and cereal gluten intolerant creatures from the West who actually got a problem. There you are. Uh, but but there is also there, there are a number of countries, particularly West Africa, where they can and the population will move from wheat to rice depending on what is cheaper. So that is that is helping quite a lot this time. But look, all said, 
if you are a big wheat importer, particularly in North Africa, would traditionally have relied significantly on that particular region of the world, the Black Sea, and particularly Ukrainian wheat, you are still in trouble. And it's not easy. So the Egyptian authorities are, are very worried. A number of countries in kind of the Sahel, North Africa, are still in trouble. But I think that the situation is just a bit better. And for now, we have avoided the kind of the worst case scenario. Here is the problem with the food crisis is you, you cannot control the weather. So, so here we are navigating uh, and just basically hoping for the best, but we have zero control on, on this. We're just a passenger and someone else is driving, whoever decides the weather, someone else is driving. So here you could say, well, things have got better and you know it's not as bad as we thought only you know six months ago, five months ago. But we can have this conversation in four weeks' time and we can be discussing sure. the weather has turned it to the worst, it's not raining, it's very hot, and then we are again in trouble. And that is what that the concern is still there. So Javier, if I can just try to distill what we've been talking about, we have crux time for Germany coming up maybe October, November. We have the European Union's pretty, I suspect, not fragile, but clearly a unity on Ukraine that could shatter very, very easily, depending on how much privation Europeans want. You have a country like France rolling out the red carpet to MBS. I thought France was so dependent on its own nuclear that it didn't need to kowtow to the uh, Saudis. Was I wrong there? No, no, you are right. I mean, France will be okay because they have the nuclear. It's just the problem is more than 50% of the nuclear reactors in France at the moment are not in operation because they are all undergoing maintenance after the discovery of some cracks on some pipes and welding. And I have a column at Bloomberg recently about this. If you were to ask me, you have, you have to make a bet and you have to choose one country in Europe where it's going to have a blackout. Which country you think in Europe is going to be the first one to have a blackout this winter? And almost everyone will say Germany. You know, the gas. Yeah. I think that the country that is going to be perhaps from an electricity point of view in much bigger trouble, it's going to be France. And my, my, I will say the lights will go off in Paris before they go off in Berlin. Wow. And is that maybe explains Macron's bear hug as opposed to fist pump, but bear hug to MBS in the last few days. Uh, a call it explains why Macron also is spending 10 billion euros fully nationalizing electricity at the France. The, the, you know, it's going to be now fully owned by the, by the government. And I think that still, if Emmanuel Macron wants to contribute to resolve the European energy crisis, or at least ease the European energy crisis, the work that he needs to do is really at home, resolving the issues of the nuclear reactors in France is absolutely crucial. A couple of data points there of the market. And, you know, I, I like to sometimes look at markets because they give us, you know, they, they sometimes can be wrong and the price could be, but, you know, directionally they give us some signals. Yeah, they give us a sense. If you look at the forward price, one year forward, which is the benchmark for electricity in France, you have a price of about 500 euros per megawatt hour right now. The same price, same contract for Germany is about 350 euros. Wow. You see, so the French, France, the French market realizes that... French market is pricing a much higher price. If you now look at what the market is pricing for the December month, which is the crucial one, because we're not going to have enough probably reactors back, nuclear reactors back in service, and then the demand is going to be very high because obviously 
French households rely heavily on electricity for heating, that price is about a thousand euros per megawatt. Wow. And that is really telling you. That's, te- that's telling me there's going to be a very large budget deficit at the very least in France this winter because they're going to have to subsidize it. And can I ask you, Absolutely. Javier, I know that you're living in London, concerns about the island beyond the island, the little place Ireland, probably don't really come up on the Bloomberg radar screen that much. But my discussions with people who know the business in Ireland say that Ireland worked on a 14-day gas supply model up until last year. We are now in a five-day model. Our gas comes from a refinery in the south of Wales. We don't have refineries ourselves. Do you have any sense of what might happen in the little island of the big island of the continent? Let me put it this way. Uh, in this crisis, I will not like to be at the end of the chain because, you know, Jesus. when you are at the end of the chain, many things can broke. Uh, exactly. can break that's on that's that what chain, I'm thinking. And then you are in trouble. I mean, Ireland has one thing, and it's, it can run through a very polluting um, energy policy through the winter, just burn coal, burn fuel oil if needed, and then you could make it with that. It's not going to be great for the environment, but you could keep the lights on. But I think in Europe, everyone is going to be very, very tight. And, and one of the problems that when I speak to policymakers across Europe is, and the traders, they describe an environment in which they say, well, we can make it. But basically, there is no room for any problem. Everything has to sure. work. And we are talking about energy systems, oil gas, coal, electricity. I mean, they are the kind of things that have fires and explosions and sparks and trips. You know, you are thinking about something that usually have a tendency to have accidents. You know, you are running natural gas on a pipeline. Of course, that from time to time, bad things happen. And, And the main problem is that we may get lucky and make it through the winter with not a problem. And a lot of these people will come to remember this podcast and say, oh my God, the, this Spanish guy not only got the housing <laughs> market grown in, in London, but he also got completely grown the energy market. It could be if everything was just perfect. But if I have learned anything covering this industry for a long time is that accidents do happen and they will happen at the worst possible moment in the middle of a call snap in, in the middle of the winter. Javier Blas, on that rather on Spanish. You know, because Spaniards tend to be upbeat, relaxed, chilled, Mediterranean. It's <clears throat> a rather apocalyptic Germanic tone. Let us leave it there, Javi. That was fascinating, kind of terrifying. But as you said, these are the facts as we see them. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me, David. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So there's, there's two very interesting ideas that he was talking about there. One was going back to the whole environmental thing of, you know, for this winter, places like Ireland, we are at the end of the pipeline. And we are, as you said earlier, completely at the mercy of, of Russia. So we may need to burn anything that's going, including coal, gas, peat even, just to keep the lights on. But the trade-off there is the environment. And of course, the big thing at the moment is the green transition and the 2030 targets and stuff. And then the other thing that I found very interesting was Saudi Arabia. And even though Biden was fist pumping MBS, how the Russians have been over there chit-chatting away with MBS and Lavrov going around doing a little tour of Africa, all those nations selling the Russian story about the Ukraine war and while selling them energy as well. So there just seems to be this big shift in power at the moment. And MBS seems to be at the center of it. Look, as I said at the very start of the podcast, right, the eighth month of 2022, 2022 is a year that the world has completely changed. Everything that we assumed about alliances, about globalization, about power networks, about war, all that is now off the table. And we're just dealing with a whole new set of realities. And August is always a good month. We don't want to actually tempt fate and say that the First World War started in the first week of August. Oh, stop. No, no, no. Stop, Mac. But it did. So all these things are up in the air. Now, a key beneficiary of everything has been Saudi Arabia. An awful regime. An awful regime. Yeah. Yet it has now been fated, and it's an awful regime for a variety of reasons, but most manifestly is that its agents cut up, cut up a dissident journalist in their embassy in Turkey. They mutilated him and cut him up. This type of mutilation that apparently the Russian forces are doing to captured Ukrainians as well 
which I've been following online, which is Yeah, I know. There's some really ugly, ugly stories coming out. But the rehabilitation of Saudi Arabia is the story, right? And of course, the reason is the following. A, they have oil, but B, also, as Russia becomes more of a pariah, Russia's allies become more of a pariah. And who's Russia's allies in the Middle East? Iran. So you have this bizarre, bizarre, almost inconceivable alliance of Israel together with the UAE and Saudi Arabia. Israel, think about yes, it, okay? Yes. All having the blessing of the United States, Iran getting more and more soldered onto Russia, but Iran obviously keeping Hezbollah supplied in Lebanon. So mm. all this is going on. And of course, Saudi Arabia continues to be this malignant, malignant regime uh, for on a variety of different, we can talk about that in another podcast, but they're back in favor because they have energy. And because they have their hands on the controls. And on the other hand, you have the Putin long war strategy, which is the Russians have managed by completely and utterly closing off trade in the ruble to get the currency to stabilize. They've managed to get interest rates down from 20 to 8% in the last six months and a stable currency because what they've penalized Russian companies from selling rubles. But how that actually impacts on the day-to-day in Russia is there's no sense of a crisis. There's no right. sense of an okay. economic crisis because their currency is stable. Because always what happens in countries like Russia, the crisis is mainly in the exchange rate. And Putin was very, very quick to identify the Russian central bank as a key ally in keeping the lid on everything. We know they can throw more and more troops. It doesn't really matter to them that their troops are not performing well and they're not gaining ground. As far as they're concerned, this is all part of the strategy. And what they're looking at is the German and French governments to basically throw East Europeans under a bus, Poles, Czechs, Romanians, and particularly the Baltic states. And that's the key battleground politically, diplomatically, and hopefully not militarily of the next six months. And God knows how it's going to turn out. And just before you go, we've started a new weekly Q&A exclusive for our Patreon supporters. Here's a clip from one of this week's questions. Supply side reforms has been the nirvana of every neoliberal since Ronald Reagan. The idea here was that everything in the economy, all the problems of the economy, can be reduced to inefficiencies on the supply side. So, for example, if you had very high levels of unemployment, what the answer to that was to reduce employment regulation, reduce unemployment benefit, and to expand the supply of labor by really terrorizing the supply of labor. It's very Thatcherite. It also didn't really work. But now, after 40 years of supply-side reform, there's very, very little in the UK that you can further eke out of the supply side that they haven't done. So they've done privatization, they've done denationalization, they've done very, very low levels of bureaucracy and red tape. They've done feckin' Brexit, which is the ultimate supply side reform because that would make them the sort of Singapore and the Thames idea. So I think that Liz Trust is basically playing not to an economic orchestra or chorus, 
but simply to the bandwagon of right-wingers in the UK who believe in this sort of voodoo economics of supply-side reforms. What it does really mean is it's going to make poor people poorer and it's going to make rich people richer. So if you have any questions or queries, and if you like what you hear and would like to join the gang on Patreon, where you can ask questions of Mac, along with lots of other stuff, like two full macroeconomics courses with notes and reading lists and all that kind of good stuff, then join us on patreon.com forward slash Dave Mac Williams. Talk to you next week. Bye.